Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Final Cut You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. An iconic opening to an iconic television show that thanks to streaming services and YouTube lives on. The Twilight Zone. It was such a popular small screen show that in 1983 it made it to the big screen. Twilight Zone the movie traded on the successful format of the TV show. Hey, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. The movie was divided into four freestanding vignettes about the same length as a TV episode without commercials. Three of the segments were based on stories from the earlier incarnation. The fourth segment was written and directed by John Landis, who previously was known for such movies as The Blues Brothers and Trading Places. During the filming of a stunt for his segment, something went horribly wrong, and three actors died, including two children who were working illegally on the movie. Tragic accident or homicide? You decide. Well, welcome, folks, uh, to this edition of Murder Most Foul, and we're speaking today with uh, Stephen Farber, who's a film critic, and he'll tell us some other things about his life, but we're talking about an interesting case. It's an old case, and uh, the title of the book is called Outrageous Conduct, Art, Ego, and the Twilight Zone Case, and it's written by Stephen and his uh, uh, film critic partner, Mark Green. So today we have Steve with a welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Good to be here. We should say just briefly, the movie was inspired by Rod Serling's TV series called The Twilight Zone, which in which he, Rod Serling, tried to introduce some social commentary into strange and fantastical stories and that often they had kind of twist endings or something surreal or supernatural that was taking place. But it was because Rod Serling wanted to make a comment on things that were happening in society during the period that he was working on this series. So this, the Twilight Zone movie, I should say, just I don't want to dwell on it, but it was a four part movie. So uh, there were four different episodes and it was sort of meant to approximate the length of a Twilight Zone episode, which was like 
25 or 30 minutes. So this episode was about uh, this bigoted man played by Vic Morrow, who's just ranting about all these different groups that he hates. And then he gets his uh, comeuppance by being transported to uh, Nazi Germany and to the South, uh, the racist South, and finally to uh, the Vietnam War. And so he gets to experience what the people that he's been attacking went through. So presumably to change his uh, bigoted point of view. So that was uh, how this all led up. Now, the, the four segments, were they right. all four stories from the series or did they come up with original stories? The other so three? They were, I think the other three were all based on episodes from the series. But this episode, the John Landis one, which of course was the one that created the uh, tragedy, was an original story. It was not based on one of the Twilight Zone episodes. It was more to be in the spirit of Rod Serling's themes, but not based on an original. Now, as I say, in the, and you can, you can get the DVD, anyone who wants to, and I, I recommend you do that, especially if you're going to then go on YouTube, you can, and we'll talk about this a little later, the incident, you uh, endlessly on YouTube replayed, yeah frame by frame, the accident that never made it, and I'm putting accident in quotes for now, the accident that never made it to the screen. In each of the uh, uh, parts of his segment where he all of a sudden finds himself in Nazi Germany, he looks like himself. He has a suit on and everything. Nothing's changed, but everyone sees him as what they're supposed to see him as. So the Nazis see him as a Jew uh, wandering, you know, the, the, the streets of the ghetto. The He appears, he, you know, again, I'm not going to go through the whole, but he then ends up in the South and he's going to be lynched. So clearly they, the, the, the Ku Klux Klan see him as a black man. Then he, this, this last segment, uh, segment, this last part of the story, he is uh, in the scene we don't even see, he is coming away from a hut and he's carrying two children. It's not clear to me with or without that scene, which again, we don't have it. Who was he supposed to be? Yeah, he was supposed to be a soldier. soldier. And uh, he is, again, uh, kind of experiencing what uh, other Vietnamese experienced in that. Now that was, this is a complicated story that I don't know if it's worth getting into too much detail, but his, it was changed before it was even filmed. The studio suggested that he change, John Landis, who wrote and directed this segment, that he change the episode to give it a more positive feeling. In the other episodes, um, Vic Morrow's character was just experienced what was going on um, as a victim. And that was, I think, supposed to be the same idea in uh, the Vietnamese segment. But the studio executive said, well, he it makes him too unsympathetic a character. So they, they wanted him redeemed. Yes, they wanted him redeemed. And so th then Landis, in co consultation with the studio, came up with the idea that he would... Uh, uh, 
save these two Vietnamese children who were under attack by uh, the American bombers so that he would show that he's finally gained some humanity, that he would have some caring for the Vietnamese uh, victims of the American uh, bombings. So that was the idea that he was supposed to um, save these two uh, children, orphans from bombing. And as a result of that, and I say, I, I'm not sure what the original ending was gonna be, but it was nothing like that. So it was this dangerous scene was added ironically because the studio wanted the character to be more humane and more sympathetic. And that never would have, the scene never would have been filmed if it hadn't been for this change in the script. For questions of taste, they didn't want to include any, they had some of the scene of the exploding village and the helicopter, some of that, they had the footage, but they didn't right. want to use it because it would have been in bad taste to uh, have a, a call to mind in any way, shape or form this horrendous uh, a tragic incident and i'm going to go with the word incident that happened while filming this uh segment one of four of the movie uh twilight zone the movie um and this one starred a uh, vic morrow and many would remember again old enough as i am a great character tv character actor yeah. and was in combat and always playing some grizzly or, you know, tough, tough bird. Tough and, and he thought this was uh, going to be a big, big uh, boost for his career. Um, you know, in, in his age, he wasn't done yet. So he thought, wow, this would be great. So obviously he was so excited about getting the script uh, and being chosen for it. But we have John Landis who wrote and directed the one segment. We have Steven Spielberg, was he producer of the whole movie or just the, the whole, movie. The whole yeah. movie? So he was, all, we'll get into a little bit about, you know, hierarchy. There's a studio and then there's a producer and there's a director and things change. Again, we got to realize that this was many years ago. So some things have changed as far as responsibility. And we have multi uh, national companies that, that, that do movies now. It's not just one guy with a cigar, um, but his uh, John's Landis's, uh, sort of right-hand man or assistant or someone who we work with a lot was a man named George George Falsey. Falsey, yeah, he was the, um, li like the producer of this segment working with Land. But he had worked yes. with John a lot. So these, this, yes. they, they, yes. they communicated uh, with each other well. Uh, another person who, who, who figures uh, prominently is Dorsey Wingo, who was uh, a helicopter pilot um on the on this particular segment and uh we want to talk about part of what makes this and we've off, already mentioned that vic morrow dies while filming the the uh segment the movie two other people two other individuals die renee chen and micah lee who are children 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 who are children they are not related uh, and I want to, we'll start right out. I do want to, I do want to talk a little bit of how they were found, how they were hired, how they came uh, to do the movie. And we will, of course, go into the fact that they were working, quote unquote, illegally, 
because yeah. the way John wanted to film it, the timing he was doing it at night and, and whatnot, he didn't want to, quote unquote, get entangled in the, the child labor laws. So he just, I guess, basically just didn't tell anybody. And so that was one of the big issues when this comes to trial is that a law was broken and then something bad happened. So tell me though about uh, Renee Chen and Michael Lee. Yes, I mean, that's the important part here because I think your point is well taken that an adult actor takes on more of his own choice in doing this, but these children really didn't have that same level of choice. And you mentioned George Folsey, who was John Landis's associate. He was the one who found these two children through someone who was working for him. And they had originally planned to go through the regular casting, but they were told by the casting director who they had consulted that it was illegal to have children working this late at night. Um, then this, he wanted this scene filmed. Uh, it actually turned out to be about 2.30 in the morning um, so that it would never have been allowed going through the usual practice of hiring children through the child labor department. They would never have been permitted young children like this um, six-year-old children to work this late at night. And it's also extremely unlikely that they would ever have been given permission even during the day to work this close to explosives and uh, a, a helicopter flying low. So, so Landis, according to the casting director that he consulted and who told him all these caveats about why they could not uh, help him to find the children. He said, to hell with you guys, you know, we'll get them off the street ourselves. Now he denied that he said that, but the casting director testified under oath that that's what he had said. And so that's basically what he did do with the help of George Folsey. And they did not tell the studio um, the studio was just uh, uh, told that they needed some money in the uh, uh, petty cash till, and they weren't told what it was for, but it was to pay the parents of these children for having them there. And they actually were there for two nights. They were there the first night to do some of the uh, uh, preliminary filming before the actual climactic scene which they did the second night and of course was tragically aborted uh, when the helicopter explosions that were set off brought the helicopter crashing down and it killed Vic Morrow and the two children. So the setup of the scene, and we'll talk a little bit about the people involved that along the way, from the drawing board to the rehearsal, to the, uh, with just the technical rehearsal to, through to the shooting, many people outright said, I'm not gonna have part of this, or, or tried to counsel John Landis that this was not, this, not safe. 
And also not only was it not safe, but as a sidebar, it could have been accomplished many other ways, just as, as, as good, just as well. But uh, John Landis at several points said that he wanted, and other directors, I don't want to just slight him, said that there's such an impact they feel to the audience to see the actor's face and to know there isn't trickery of camera, that it's not a stunt person and that it's the real person. And they said that that is why he didn't want to use a stunt person. And that's why he didn't want to shoot it on a sound stage with, I mean, we, have, we already had Star Wars by then. So, I mean, and Spielberg. So we had all the technique that would have been necessary to make this wonderful without this. But that being said, he did it old school, done live with explosions, as you say, blowing up uh, huts that were behind people, uh, behind uh, the actors. Uh, gun gunfire uh, in, in the water. Again, they're going through a small uh, river. So we, we've got the gunshots in the water and, uh, the, and then the helicopters coming in and everyone's saying, you know, it's flying too low. It's, it's really, the, you know, where they set it, it's doing, then we'll talk a little bit about Landis and his bullhorn in a moment, but it's flying kind of low. We don't know what would happen. You can't gauge this. If some of this debris were to get into the rotors, something, you know, could happen. Now, the, the, the pilot was, uh, that was really his name, Wingo? Yes, Dorsey Wingo. I love it. So anyway, so he was a, 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 a trained helicopter pilot. Yes. So, you know, so he could handle his part, but there were still unknowns. And if he's just doing it over a desert and they're doing an establishing shot, he's willing to do it. And if he dies, he dies. If it goes into the mountain, he dies. But obviously he's conscious that's 10 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet below him is another human being carrying two children, one under each arm, racing through this chaos for this 30-second, 40-second scene. So that's the setup of what this thing was supposed to be. And as I say, um, many people along the lines, as they got closer to closer, were very concerned. But let's bring up a point at this point, because there was a trial uh, after, as the aftermath. And uh, part of the question was, did the parents know what the, the, the entire extent of the danger? The parents did not know. Um, they were excited at the idea of being in a movie. Remember this movie was being produced by Steven Spielberg and it was the summer that E.T. had come out. So Steven Spielberg was a hero to everybody and uh, children knew about him, of course, as well as the parents. So, so they were told, you know, they were going to be in an exciting scene in a movie that was produced by Steven Spielberg. They had no experience with the film business and they didn't really know what they were gonna be filming until they got to the location and then even then they weren't uh, given that much information. And one of the parents asked George Folsey, is, this, uh, is there any danger? Is this a dangerous scene? And he said, oh no, it's just uh, really uh, play acting and uh, there's no real danger.
they had no experience with filmmaking, obviously. So they did what the director and the producer told them they were supposed to do in this scene. And everyone agreed that the hiring of the children was a crime, that they actually were not charged with that officially for the trial. But if they had been, I mean, they broke the law clearly in hiring these children without going through the regular child labor procedures. So that was, I say clearly, they were guilty of that. But the prosecution in formulating the case at the beginning wanted to charge them with manslaughter, which of course um, carries a serious prison term if convicted. And so they didn't want to include these uh, 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 lesser charges like child endangerment, illegal hiring of the children in that they wanted to go for the big uh, charge of involuntary manslaughter. And it was really the first time that uh, a movie director had ever been charged with that kind of a crime. So it was a historic case in that regard. And it took a few years after the incident in 1982 for the trial to get started. It didn't start until 1986, so four years later. And it went on for nine months. It was like a very long running trial, which is in our view, one reason why the, the defendants were um, acquitted was that the trial dragged on well, so long that it t tested the patience of the jurors and everyone else. Uh, it, that's of course a big, and I, I believe it, you know, totally. That's another <clears throat> reason they said OJ was acquitted. One of the reasons was it was just too long, too, yes. too many witnesses, yes. too much stuff. Yes. Right, right. Now, we're there that night, the night before too, and every time something, you know, any question comes up, it's clear, and this is the hierarchy. You do have the studio and the people with the money and, and whatnot. The director is God. The yes. director says something, and everyone, this was part of passing the buck at the time of the trial, whenever you'd hit a, I don't know, a stunt coordinator or, um, uh, you know, a, a producer, a unit manager, they'd all say, hey, if John says we do this, we do it. Now, if he said, take a pistol and blow somebody's head off, of course they wouldn't. But anything else that is in the realm of what we do, we do stunts. So everyone's in place. Everyone, there's a guy setting off the explosions. There's a guy setting off the bullets because uh, that's a separate device. So everyone's doing it. And it's all, you know, got to happen in this one uh, you know, we want to get it in one take, as they say. And so I'm sure they have multiple cameras uh, working to capture it from different angles. And the helicopter, and I've seen, as I say, you can go on YouTube and see yeah, the original um, right. raw, I, I won't call it video, the raw film. Footage. And it, the helicopter, very dramatic. The helicopter's got a searchlight. So the searchlight's on the helicopter moving around the water and the, the rotor blades from the helicopter are so close, they didn't even have to have a wind machine. It was making the waves in right. the water. And I'm sure that was part of the, his belief in verisimilitude 
that the helicopter was doing all the all the technical work. Um, and if you could have people shooting real bullets and not hit anybody, you probably would have asked for that too. Just um, one point about the um, the chain of command or the hierarchy, as you were mentioning. Um, it's worth pointing out that um, the studio, of course, has the ultimate authority, but there were no studio executives on the set that night. They had turned over this production entirely to John Landis and Steven Spielberg and their team. Spielberg was not there that night, but the, his producing partner, Frank Marshall, who was the executive producer of the entire movie and worked on many Spielberg movies, was there. But no one from the studio, Warner Brothers, was there because these filmmakers were considered auteurs and they had accumulated power so that they did not really have to be under the control of the studio. So the studio executives turned everything over to them. So you, you, in some cases, there might be studio uh, executives on the set of a movie. But in this case, there was no one from the uh, a studio Warner Brothers present. So we're now there that, and as you say, it's two o'clock in the morning, the night of this particular shoot. Um, one of the parents, one of the sets of parents, a parent or two of one of the children is there the night of the incident, correct? Or the morning there, of the there incident? There was one parent of each of the child, but not both parents. No. Yes. So that, you're right. So there were parents of both children uh, yeah. there the night uh, that, that, that this takes place. So again, it was out in a desert somewhere. I mean, they set, yeah. you know, set up the, the, the yeah, jungle. North of Los Angeles, yes. Yeah. Uh, which they got a lot of land out there to do these, you know, right. locations, especially again at night. So everyone's in place. Everyone gets their places, please. And the director, the auteur, says action. Tell, tell us what happens. So then, so they have Vic with the two children. We have the explosives are planted in the hut. We have the helicopter um, with cameramen uh, inside the helicopter as well as cameras set up on the ground. And so they're getting ready for the scene and John Landis calls action. And then the helicopter is flying overhead and John Landis cries out, lower, lower. He wants the helicopter to come lower, which is dangerous in and of itself. Helicopters can crash and injure or kill people, which has happened on other movie sets. Um, and then they hit the um, explosive wire to set off these explosions that is supposed to be inside a hut and the explosions were bigger than expected. The helicopter was lower than it should have been. And this explosives hit the helicopter and bring it crashing down, it loses control. The pilot could not keep control of it. It comes crashing down 
and it decapitates Vic Morrow and the young boy, Micah Lee, and crushes uh, the little girl, Renee Chen, all killed instantly and horrifically. And suddenly a scene that was supposed to be heroic turned horrendously grisly and tragic. And uh, this was a nightmare that no one had anticipated, but perhaps should have been better prepared. That even run at, you know, I mean, like it's ballet or it's dance choreography, steps have to happen or a fight, a sword fight. I've directed sword fights uh, and they have to, you, you can't decide you're going to, you know, uh, do something different. It has to be or someone gets hurt. So even as set, it was dangerous. You yeah. had explosions that maybe weren't uh, uh, um, intentionally bigger. I don't remember if he asked for more powder, but they came out bigger or that there wasn't as much to damp it down. So there were more debris. And clearly he called the helicopter, and again, he denies that in the trial, but he calls the helicopter lower. At that point, um, Wingo has, a, has, I don't know if he has an obligation, but he has, it's going to be the end of his career, just to either yell out a no or not do it. Just right. stay where he is, let the scene shoot out. It'll be over, they'll have it in the can, and then he can be fired. Remember, the scene had not really been uh, re rehearsed beforehand, a difficult kind of a scene to rehearse. But even Landis's uh, defenders admitted that, well, in future, you should really have spent more time in preparation with this scene, do dry runs, rehearsals. I talked to a number of other film uh, directors who had done scenes with special effects, explosions, dangerous scenes, and they all said, you have to take a lot of time and do these scenes more than once, plan them out to get an idea of what could happen what's at stake. Now, this was a fairly low budget film because it was only one fourth of a, a feature film that was not a big budgeted feature anyway. I mean, it was a moderate budget, but they could have and should have spent more time in preparation, in rehearsal, and uh, John Landis just didn't put that extra effort into it. So, and you should also, you mentioned about the, the pilot, um, the helicopter pilot, Dorsey Wingo. Could he have um, objected or refused to bring the helicopter lower? You have to remember that he was an experienced helicopter pilot, but he had not worked on a movie before. And he was kind of excited about the idea of getting into more film work and he didn't, maybe a more experienced 
pilot would have challenged uh, John Landis and said, no, this is too dangerous. We can't do this. And in fact, they had interviewed a couple of other pilots who didn't want to do the, the, the film or the scene because they felt that maybe the budget was too low and the, therefore they wouldn't be able to have the precautions that they needed. So I think Dorsey Wingo as an inexperienced movie helicopter pilot wanted to please his uh, director. And so he wasn't about to challenge and say, oh no, this is too low. He was gonna try and follow the directions that John Landis gave him. His assumption was, well, John Landis and the producers know what they're doing. They must know what they're doing. And uh, I may have some qualms about this, but it's not my place to raise objections or criticize. So that was part of what was operating here, I think. Well, also. and it's it's a big part of it, as you as you pointed out even earlier. You had Vic Morrow, who was desperate—I mean, not desperate, but excited—to do this. You had the parents of the children who said, and even the children themselves, while they, you know, were doing other parts of it, thought, "This, I'm in a movie." Yes. Um, and they probably saw ET, and they go, well, "This is this, you know, you can be like like the, the little girl in ET, and a pilot." So you got all these people who want to please him. I mean, everyone wants to please their boss, but they're probably more colored by. Uh, the fame of uh, John Landis and uh, where and Steven Spielberg and whatnot. And so they're not maybe thinking as clearly, but as you say, the big part was for Wingo is that he was not a, he hadn't been through this kind of thing. I mean, you can be a great pilot and pick up, you know, people on the highway and take them to hospitals and on that's all that's dangerous helicopter. I've been in one once. I wouldn't do it again. I think it's, it's, it's creepy, but uh, he he was willing to do this because of 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 something. Now, what, even if he didn't see it as more, you know, doing something else, it was a notch in a resume. Now I've I've done a movie. I was a right. a pilot in a movie. Let's talk a little bit about the horrendous the, again YouTube videos. I'm not trying to to send people to 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 voyeur, but at horrible stuff. But again, the video you you can see the rotor come down the way it does, but because of the darkness and everything that was going on, trust me, you will not see heads come off, but you will see the, the people in, on the set, uh, obviously they stopped and they, and they went into the water and they're trying to help the pilots. And, uh, and I, I'm hoping that the cameraman survived as well. Yes, yeah, okay. there, were, so they, there were a couple. They got people. everyone out of the there helicopter. Were a couple people in the helicopter. Um, yes, they survived. Uh, because it wasn't a big drop. I mean, it still was a crunch. You look at it and the helicopter's not a, something to be held together. You know, it's, it's, it's a little, you know, it falls and it falls apart. And people went into the water and there was, again, this is recounted in your book, uh, where the first, I mean, they see the headless bodies, uh, the two headless bodies floating in the water. Someone actually picked up uh, Vic Morrow's body without the head and, you know, and carried it out. Uh, the children, you know, this this, this little um, river, which again, you know, was created on site, um, blood everywhere. The parents, I don't know if they went running to the water or whatever, but obviously screaming and and I mean, yeah. your first your first inkling was, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. Well, they didn't tell me. This is kind of weird. Then it's clear something went wrong.
Yeah, so I mean, it, it was a, a horrible shock to the parents and to everybody on the crew, actually. And uh, just, they all dispersed and went home. Obviously, they called the, the police, the authorities, and uh, it was, took people to the hospital. There were some, some minor injuries of the people who were on the helicopter. They were injured, so they went to the hospital. Um, so it was, I think everyone was in a state of shock. And uh, one of the people reported that they heard someone calling out, that's a wrap, you know, which is what you say on a movie set, but it was a bizarre thing to say in this particular instance. But, uh, and they urged everyone to go home, go home immediately. And one of the people that I interviewed, one of the crew members said, actually, it might have been better if we had stayed and uh, consoled each other and had some kind of a group mourning um, because of what had happened, but they just wanted to get the location cleared as quickly as possible. And the long-term effect I, on uh, most of these people, I'm sure was profound. And I'm not, again, I'm not gonna judge John Landis, but he went on even during the pending of the trial and was directing movies and TV yes. things. Yes. And, you know, yes. in, his, in his heart, uh, you know, in defense or whatever you wanna call it, you'd say, well, he's, an, he's, he's a, a ghoul or an, an animal. In his heart, he probably felt, I did nothing, it was an accident. I did the best I could. I was as careful as I could. And it was up to other people, of course. That's why there's a trial to judge, was it reasonable or, or unreasonable what you did? But he did not feel he took a gun to anybody's head and killed right. them. So he went on with his with his life for quite a while, um, even during the- Yes, I mean, and, and yes, he, he took the approach that this was an accident, that uh, he- had no idea what was going to happen. However, there was a very um, revealing moment at the trial when the prosecutor, he actually took the stand. A lot of times uh, our defendants in a criminal trial do not testify, but he did testify. And he claimed that he had really no idea of what would happen. And he believed that the scene was safe uh, as it was designed. And then the prosecutor asked him, then you would do it again if you had uh, an opportunity. And surprisingly, he said, no, I would not do it again. Um, I, because three people died close to me, closer than you are right now, speaking to the prosecutor <clears throat> and I would not do this scene again. And so then she <laughs> went in for the kill and said, uh, because it was dangerous. And he said, well, that's not what I said, but. Anyway. Yeah, that, that I agree with you that, that you, you know, everything's you know, hindsight and we don't get to go back and take the other road less traveled. So, you know, uh, he did, I could see that he felt that served the, the purpose to say, if he said no, if he said, yes, I'd do it again, that he open up a whole nother, you know, right. <clears throat> question of, of you, even if you knew there was a, but he's saying, well, there's potential, 
you know, for this. So this one, this one came up to a line that I, I wouldn't cross again, even though right. I, I still think it's okay. I still would not come up to, to, to this yes. line. So um, again, there's a lot of investigation. The NT, NTSB, NTSB comes on board and, and all authorities yes. and the DA uh, does eventually go forward with a case. Everyone assumed, I'm sure him included in his lawyers, that it would be some kind of, if it even went to, it would be civil. Everyone's going to sue and that's accepted, but no criminal. Well, there was a charge and there was a pretrial which again is something in California. Some yes. places have a grand jury. They have a, which is almost, it's, it's a trial, but it's yes. up to the judge to decide after the mini trial, do we go forward? And at that point, I did take this quote out of the book. Uh, it was, uh, he, Landis, Stewart, and Wingo, there's evidence to charge them with involuntary manslaughter. So manslaughter is not negligent. They right. didn't mean to, you know, but they, that term manslaughter does ring a certain way. And they now tell help me who was Stuart, like one of the uh, special effects. He was a special effect a special uh, effects. coordinator. So they tried to get a little bit up the ladder. I mean, they're doing yes. the, the pilot because he was physically doing it. And yes. we have Landis who ordered him to do it. And then they went at least, they didn't go to producers or that. Well, they it, did have Folsey, George Folsey. Who was, was in a, there too? He was also uh, on trial and a production um, coordinator, manager, Dan Allingham. So Alling I had his name, but I, I didn't get into him because it yeah. was, but yeah, there were, there were more than, than five one. defendants. And they, and they, obviously they just, because of the single incident, they didn't separate out trials. Everyone was either going right. to hang together or, or go free. Yes. And uh, there were many witnesses. There were supporters and detractors that again, the trial is in here too. It's like part two of the book recommend it's 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 riveting reading but it does get into a lot of names and and over a period of like you say nine months it's better to read than to talk about um but uh, i thought one of the my favorite or interesting uh witnesses which i'd love you to talk a little bit about witness for the prosecution was jackie cooper yes they wanted to bring somebody who was an experienced filmmaker, film director. Jackie Cooper had, of course, started out as a child actor himself. And I think that was one reason that they wanted to have him because he could identify from two different points of view. First of all, as a child actor with the children in the movie, and then as an experienced uh, film director. And he watched the footage and he they could have found other people to testify, other filmmakers, but they decided to limit it to one expert witness for the prosecution who testified that he had watched the footage and studied the case and felt that it was definitely unsafe scene to do a negligent behavior on the part of the uh, director. And so he was the one filmmaker witness for the prosecution. Now they thought about having filmmakers for the defense, but they decided not to go in that uh, direction. Um, but I say they, the defense kept it to a fairly, abbreviated case 
which may have been shrewd. The prosecution had many, many uh, uh, witnesses, and I think it could be argued that they kind of wore out the jury with too much technical testimony that really didn't carry that much weight. And you get into the one of the uh, defense lawyers who I spoke to after the trial said, it's hard to convict people of an accidental death. I mean, there could be arguments as to whether it's accidental, but clearly nobody intended to kill anyone on this film set. And it's, so it's a challenging thing to prove that they're guilty of involuntary manslaughter, which admittedly they didn't intend it, but still they went so far beyond the realm of what was acceptable that they should be found guilty. So this lawyer for John Landis said, you know, it's a hard thing to prove because jurors will identify with the defendants and think about mistakes that they may have made at times without any intention that they sometimes didn't give enough thought to what they were doing. And so that the, that will get a certain sympathy for the defendants because no one claimed that they intended to kill these people. They well, claimed that they it, were careless. It's similar, the other, the other way I look at it, it's similar, uh, I mean, I don't know if it's a, it's a good analogy, but it's like if you're, if you're, uh, you have drinks and you get in a car and, and you kill someone, yeah. uh, you, you knew you shouldn't be driving. Right. It's not even a question of might, well, you, you can convince yourself it's not dangerous. I think I can get home. Right. They, you didn't intend to do anything bad, right. certainly right. not kill someone. And yet, so should we say, well, okay, you know, pay a little fine. No, I mean, this no. is... A, no, now, that's, a, that's a good example of something. That... So as I said, well, we, I think we figured it out, or I think we've uh, skirted around it. They were found not guilty. Yes. Um, uh, and again, like I said, they had no lesser charges. So the, I'm the manslaughter that took care of everything. Everything's gone. And I'm, you know, parents and, and people sued and, and, and I'm not going to get into all that. But, but the, obviously the studio had to pay what they had to pay on the civil. And they knew that was going to happen no matter what yes. happened. No, um, and they were fine. The, the studio was fined. And I think the filmmakers also for this violation of the child labor law. So they, they did the civil fine rather than prosecuting it criminally. Yeah. Using children. You know, they, uh, they clearly were guilty of that. And they did... Uh, pay a penalty for that. And in fact, um, <laughs> the attorney for Landis, that uh, was one of the points that he made during the trial when he was questioning Landis. Um, he said, well, you hired these children illegally, didn't you? And uh, Landis said, yes. And he said, and you know that was wrong now, don't you? <laughs> and so Landis said, yes, I know. <laughs> so you know, they acknowledge that point, but trying to acknowledge guilt on a minor point that then, not that it's so minor because it led to a horrible tragedy, but that therefore they could make the case that they should be acquitted on these more severe charges. And, and, and yeah. um, Stephen, I think one of the things that did bring me to focus on this, and if it were just 
and I'm not the only one to, to say this, if it were just Vic Morrow, just, that's not a nice thing to say, but if it was, no one else was killed but Vic Morrow, it would never get the attention. But not only were children killed, but they weren't professional children. They weren't people who accepted that. I mean, I don't know if you can be professional children taking this kind of risk. Parents have to agree. Yes. And so not only children shouldn't have been there, regardless of law, they should not. That would be child abuse in my mind, even if the law said it was okay. But there was a law and there's a purpose for the law. Right. Law is not just to, to, to make things difficult for you, John. It's because this is not, there should have been, not only should there have been, and maybe there would be if it went through the casting system, there should have been some kind of, not the parent, an adult child advocate yeah. on that set every second and, and yeah. at all the production meetings. And that person would have the, the veto power to say, these kids are out. And again, if you look at that footage, now maybe they had different cameras that got a better look. I couldn't tell what he was carrying. No. That's what a lot of people said. A lot of other filmmakers said, you looked at the footage, you couldn't tell anyway that, they, they, that there were real children there. A lot of film directors, because I interviewed a, a number of other directors for the book, and they said, yes, there's no way that you really saw uh, these children. It could have been um, adult midgets. It could have been dummies even and you wouldn't have really known the difference in any case so yeah that was sort of landis's uh a perfectionism run amok <laughs> run amok i like that right. but uh a couple just a couple things to wrap up this is really good one of the things i did want to mention in the book i think i only found one place where you mentioned now again this is from that time to current has any actor of yeah, well, not a walk-on actor, an actor of note. Have they ever been killed in a stunt before this? Well, I mean, they've been seriously, you know, sometimes injured, but I, I don't know of an actor that had been, uh, stunt people had been killed. Oh, um, numerous. Pilots, helicopter pilots had been killed too, because a lot of the movies had used very dangerous helicopter stunts. Uh, Sidney Pollack, one of the directors who I interviewed, said, oh, as a director, these are like toys. You love working with helicopters, and but they're very dangerous. <laughs> and they moved into, they moved very quickly into television. You know, you're going to have them in the A-team and, and right. Magnum, you know, it, it just, it, it proliferated. It's not just in um, in movies, but it's right. in, then the one injury that I think is fascinating, and I think most people know about this, and I'll let you narrate it, the Margaret Hamilton injury. Tell us about yes. Margaret Hamilton. Well, yes, um, of course, this is one of the classic scenes in a film from The Wizard of Oz, when um, she goes up in smoke. Well, it's a number of scenes where she's uh, up in smoke. Um, and uh, in one of these scenes, she was actually severely burned, body burns, and she was for weeks in the hospital. And uh, when she came back to the set, the uh, a director told her, oh, that was such a great scene. And, uh, you know, she barely survived and everything. And she mentioned that she thought of suing them um, for putting her in danger. And 
she decided that if she sued, she would never work again. A lot of people came forward and said, there's another way to do this. You can do it on a sound stage. Someone came up the 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 concept that I have to accept. Uh, it was a video, a, a filmographer saying, you know, you really can't get uh, depth perception. You know, it's not 3D movies. So the helicopter could even be, you know, as we say in theater, upstage. Of the, it didn't have to be right over them at that moment. Various ways to trick the the yeah. eye if you wanted to, even if you didn't want to do it on a sound stage. Right. But one of my favorite clips, and I went back and looked at it, and I'm sure you're aware, you're familiar with it, uh, North by Northwest, where Gary Cary Grant is being chased by a crop duster. Right. And you can look at the scene on YouTube. And first of all, it's Hitchcock. So yeah. the 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 magic of editing that didn't have to do just with getting a scene, but it's how he crafted your interest and, and the suspense. Uh, these quick cuts, it was like 186 cuts in 30 seconds or something. And, but you look at it, you have the big establishing shot where he's actually on the road and the plane is coming at him. But every time it gets close, this was all done with, the, with, the, with the, a movie of the plane behind him on a soundstage, and I defy you not to be, even now, we're jaded in 2001, not to be on the edge of your seat, right, right. and no one came anywhere near being hurt. Yes, yes. A, a great filmmaker, you know, was able to do this with ingenuity rather than placing people in jeopardy. So there's a lesson there. Now, so let's close out with, do you have an opinion? Well, my opinion was that uh, he did behave in an irresponsible way and that he put people in danger unnecessarily, that um, this was not a safe scene to do. And he bent a lot of rules here. And I wasn't on the jury. I don't know what I would have voted if I was on the jury, but I think he certainly has responsibility and culpability here. No question about that. This has been a wonderful conversation with Thank Stephen. You very much. With Stephen Farber. His website is www.stephenfarber.com. Stephenfarber.com. Yes. And that's uh, Stephen, the old fashioned way, P H. So that's uh, S T E P H E N F A R B E R. No caps, no spaces. Uh, he has a, a lecture series that if he's coming to your area now that COVID's over, you can go participate in. Once again, the book is Outrageous Conduct, Art, Ego, and the Twilight Zone Case by Stephen Farber and Mark Green. Is Mark Green still around? Yes. Great. Yes. But I like when people are just still around. And uh, so uh, you can, again, go there, learn other things, drop them an email like I did. Uh, it's a fascinating book. Uh, even if I got mine at a library, it's still at many libraries. So again, it's an older book. So it might not be e as easy to get uh, at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, et cetera, without paying a lot of money to a reseller. But go check it out. So again, I want to thank through the bottom of my heart, Stephen Farber for appearing today on Murder Most Foul. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, very good.
press was not exactly kind to John Landis during the trial. In an article in Vogue magazine dedicated to the wedding of Sean Penn and Madonna, it recounted how Sean Penn was fairly exasperated about the paparazzi-filled helicopters, and he had opined he would rather be very excited to see one of those helicopters burn and the bodies inside melt. Quote, If that's all he wanted, the magazine puckishly commented, he should have called John Landis. Well, there you have it. Another episode of Murder Most Foul. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll spread the word amongst your friends. You can leave comments, suggestions, questions via email through the website, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. And so, until we meet again, take care. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. <laughs>